This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Kick-Ass Politics is sponsored by Fiverr. You've heard me rave about Fiverr before. That's Fiverr with two R's. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services, with over a 100 categories all offered at a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards and stationery, web design, translation, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can imagine, all offered at a base price of just $5. In fact, the announcer who does our intro on Kick-Ass Politics, I found him on Fiverr, a professional radio announcer to do our intro for just five bucks. And right now, if you go to Kick-Ass Politics and click on the link for Fiverr on our sponsor page, you'll be showing your support for the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. Hi there. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. Um, I'm a little depressed today, folks. Uh, I was reading the newspaper earlier, and the news is just so bleak. I mean, listen to this. Scientists say that the world is headed toward massive overpopulation. Or, or how about this one? One-fifth of all living species are going to be extinct within the next 30 years. We're all going to be underwater thanks to global warming. Cancer rates are skyrocketing from pesticides and GMOs. The very drugs we're taking to keep us healthy are killing us. We're headed for a catastrophic energy crisis, food shortages, and mass starvation. Oh, the humanity. I can't take it anymore. It's hopeless. I'm just going to jump off a roof. But wait a minute. My guest today says none of that's happening. Ronald Bailey is a science writer for Reason Magazine and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He's the author of a popular book called EcoScam, The False Prophets of Ecological Apocalypse. Now he's expanding on the same theme in his new book, The End of Doom, Environmental Renewal in the 21st Century. Ron says we all need to chill out a little bit because the future is actually really bright on almost every front. Things are getting much better, not worse. And the things that could become a problem down the road, such as climate change, are things that we can manage if we innovate, adapt, and take reasonable steps to mitigate it. In just a moment, he'll separate fact from fiction about global warming, GMOs, the safety of the drugs you take, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. My guest today is Ron Bailey. He's a science correspondent for Reason Magazine, and he has a new book called The End of Doom, Environmental Renewal in the 21st Century. Ron, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm very happy to be with you. Well, I enjoyed The End of Doom a lot, and key to the story here is your personal journey from a young student in the 60s and 70s who bought into the alarmist rhetoric of books like The Population Bomb and The Silent Spring to eventually becoming a man who, some 20 years later, 
had the audacity to go back and hold up these predictions against the actual data and say, wait a minute here, something's not quite adding up. Tell us how that experience shaped your views and led you to this book. Uh, as a student back in the 1970s, I was taught the canonical, if you will, founding books of uh, what is modern ideological environmentalism, Silent Spring, The Population Bomb, and The Limits to Growth. And I believe that the future they were outlining for me was pretty bleak, that uh, I probably wasn't going to have a very long life and that a lot of, I would die in great misery with a lot of other people uh, before I reached middle age. Well, in the fullness of time, I was a staff writer at Forbes magazine, and I noticed that we were all still here. In fact, things were getting better. So I had the idea of going back and rereading the books and then going to the authors and asking them what happened. And I fully expected them to say, oh, thank goodness we were wrong, and this is why we were wrong, etc. And instead, what I discovered is, is that, no, that's not what they thought. Uh, instead, they would say, well, we just got our timing wrong. For example, Paul Ehrlich, who uh, is a Stanford University biologist to this day, uh, who wrote The Population Bomb, said, Brian, I got my timing wrong. The famines will occur, and hundreds of millions of people are going to die between 2000 and 2010. Uh, obviously, that hasn't happened yet either still. I mean, another example is I went to MIT to talk to the folks who were behind the computer program, um, that came up with the calculations that were published in The Limits to Growth, which basically say we're going to be out of oil and natural gas and tin and gold and lead and zinc all by, all before the year 2000. And I pointed out that I was uh, doing my reporting at Forbes in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, that we still had plenty of these things. In fact, the prices had been going down. And after expressing some annoyance with me, they did say, well, perhaps we overemphasize the material resources side a bit too much, at which point I said, well, have you called up the New York Times, which put you on the front page back in the 70s and admitted you were wrong? No, they hadn't done that. Uh, but they were thinking other things would go wrong. Well, if we're not running out of stuff, well, the pollution is going to get us, etc. So basically, the theory is right and the data must be wrong somehow. It's hard for me to see any difference between these kind of excuses and the excuses that people make up for why Nostradamus's predictions don't come true or, or any other kind of doomsday <laughs> apocalypse. I, I, I think that these people make astrology look like an honest science. Are they just thinking that they can wait us out, that, that either we're not going to be around or they're not going to be around to remind them when these things don't come true? Well, I intend to be around to remind them, and it really annoys them, let me tell you. I'll but, bet. Uh, <laughs> The thing is, they're in such a, the grip, of, if you will, of a theory that they can't see the facts, and they won't change their minds because whenever they see something, they will come up with a, an excuse for why that set of facts is, is wrong and why their theory will still nevertheless prove to be true, and in, in which case, it's not science anymore. An analogy might come up as Marxism. You could never prove Marxism wrong to a convinced Marxist, and to a convinced environmentalist, you can never prove uh, certain kinds of predictions with regard to resources, population, uh, and the human uh, ingenuity and, de and development. They're blind to the data. And in your book, you recount how when you were writing your first book, EcoScam, you had a meeting with your editor, and he said, if you had brought me a book predicting the end of the world, I could have made you a rich man. So were you yeah. at all tempted to go over to the dark side at that point? No, I can't, can't do that. I'm, I'm very tempted to figure out if I can pose some way. 
of, of coming up with a book that basically says that the world's coming to an end. But I haven't found a convincing way to do that or a way at least convince myself of that. And it's not optimism. It's just the data are against that. And I guess optimism doesn't sell. No, optimism certainly doesn't sell. You're only a serious person if you're selling doom. Uh, and that's just a feature of human psychology. Well, going back to Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb, one of the things that I find disturbing about this alarmist rhetoric um, is that it just seems to throw gasoline on the fire of conspiracy theorists and tinfoil hat nuts and their paranoia, you know, particularly with the issue of population, that the Bilderberg or the Council on Foreign Relations must be uh, secretly plotting to socially engineer population control, which in their mind, of course, always goes to the worst case scenario, which means killing people off rather than just controlling birth rates. Is there something sinister to their intentions when population alarmists seem to be essentially rooting for more death? And what would you say to the Paul Ehrlichs out there about the danger of fueling irrational thinking on this particular issue? I don't think that they're conspiracy theorists, but you do point to the danger of listening too closely to what they say. Uh, consider, for example, the Chinese Communist Party's one-child policy. The one-child policy was enforced uh, brutally across time. Uh, women who were pregnant without permission, for example, were forced to have abortions, that kind of thing. And they were following, if you will, the logic of the people who were pushing the notion of overpopulation. One other aspect, though, it's not a conspiracy. One of the things that that a lot of these people seem to be hoping for, for example, Naomi Klein, the Canadian activist, um, who's written a new book uh, called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. What she's trying to do is uh, argue that the environmental situation is so terrible, we have to destroy capitalism and enact all the sorts of policies that I would really like to have, largely, if you will, a kind of socialist utopia. Well, going back to population, you've said that the global population will top out around 2050 and then should start to gradually decline. Uh, what will be the driving forces behind that reversal? Well, what has happened over the last 50 years or so is, is that there's something called the total fertility rate, and that is uh, the average number uh, of children a woman will have over the course of her lifetime. And the global total fertility rate was uh, around five or six children per woman in the 1960s and is now down to 2.45. Uh, children over the course of her life uh, at a global level. And there are many countries, including the United States, which are below replacement, which is 2.1 children per woman over the course of her lifetime. And it continues to fall. Hugely, the reason it continues to fall are two things, at least. One is increased wealth. Uh, it turns out that the wealthier people are, the fewer children they have. Instead of investing in a lot of children, they have fewer, higher quality children. In other words, they send them to college, for example. Uh, the other thing is, is that women are becoming increasingly educated and liberated across, across the globe over time. And again, if they have access to contraception and they have access to the market and they have access to education, women choose to have fewer children. If you're looking at demographic trends over the course of the rest of the century, and you expect, and you expect, as I do, uh, humanity to continue to progress and, and wealth to still be accumulated, even in the poorest places on the planet. It, it's, it means that world population will probably top out between eight and nine billion people and begin to drift downward by 2100.
Well, yeah, and I think I'm seeing this idea of quality versus quantity put into practice in China because I was just talking the other day to someone who spends a lot of time over there and everyone is concerned or everyone thinks that China is going to dominate the next century as the manufacturing giant. And she says the parents are, are, are working in factories but because they only have one child and they have resources, they're putting all of their resources into putting their kids in college so they can have good jobs and not have to work in the factories. Well, and another thing to think about is is that um, because of the one-child policy, what will happen is is that China's population is set to contract rather drastically over the, the rest of this century. China is about 1.3 billion people. And if the current fertility trends continue the way they are, and there's no sign that they won't continue the way they are, China's population will drop to only 400 million people by 2100. In other words, China will lose two-thirds of its population uh, due to the fact that they, they, their fertility rate is really, really low. The other problem is is that um, you know China is getting wealthier, but it's also getting old very fast. Uh, in fact, the average age in China is higher than in the United States. They don't have the, the kind of wealth that's been built up in places like the United States and Western Europe. And so the question is, will they get old before they get rich? And if they do, uh, China is going to have a really rough road, economically speaking. Moving on, another thing that's a big source of irritation for you is all the misinformation going around about GMOs or genetically modified crops. Um, if the preponderance of science says GMOs are safe, then why is this anti-GMO rhetoric sticking? Every independent scientific organization that has ever evaluated the safety of genetically modified crops has found them to be safe to eat and safe for the environment. No one on planet Earth has gotten so much as a cough, sniffle, wheeze, or stomach ache from eating any foods made from ingredients from modern biotech crops, period. So why are people afraid of them? Well, a little bit of the history of that. What happened is uh, just as they were being rolled out in Europe, that is the new biotech crops were, there were a couple of food crises that the governments in those countries more or less uh, generated. Uh, people may remember the mad cow disease problem in England, where the government in England was assuring the public that it wasn't a problem, uh, that it was safe to eat the meat there, and it turned out that they were not completely correct on that. Same time, there was a, a problem in uh, France where the French government was assuring the French people that the blood supply was uh, free of HIV uh, virus, the virus that causes AIDS, and, the, and that turned out not to be true. The government had, was lying to the people there. So at the same time as these misinformation was coming out, the governments were also assuring people that the new biotype crops were safe. Uh, people were justifiably skeptical of their government. And uh, what happened is that Greenpeace, uh, France most specifically, which was more or less collapsing at the time, they were losing members and funding, decided to jump on the bandwagon and say genetically modified crops are just like those other food crises. And they didn't have any scientific evidence for that, but it sure did bring in the funds and it sure did scare people. And as activists, uh, regrettably, they are never held to the same standards of telling the truth uh, that other people, most particularly uh, scientists and researchers who work for uh, companies like Monsanto are. So they basically manage to frighten people, and it takes a huge amount of information to bring back a scare once it's been launched. And 
um, most of the major uh, environmental organizations still do a great deal of scaremongering as a way of fundraising on this issue. Right. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is, you know, we were just talking about the third world and fighting poverty. One of the best defenses against fighting poverty and, and fighting global hunger is GMOs. Yes, absolutely. They um, they have their insect resistance built into them, for example, so you spray fewer pesticides. You're also able to control weeds much more easily than by plowing because you can spray for the weeds. And many of them are also disease resistant. Essentially, what you find is is that when these crops are used in the United States, they boost yield, you know, maybe 10% or something like that, which is not nothing, but it's good. But if you send these same seeds to poor farmers in, in poor countries, they boost yields by 50% or 80% because they can prevent destruction from pests, for example. So they really are much better to be used by poor people rather than rich farmers in the United States. And one other thing to keep in mind is, is that the, the average yield, for example, corn in the United States is 166 bushels per acre. It's still only 32 bushels per acre in Africa. There's a lot that can be done to uh, enable African farmers to produce more food without using really fancy new technologies, just using the stuff we already have. Yeah, and it's bizarre to me when I hear these people who are think that we should all go to organics. If, we, if if the whole world went to organics, hundreds of millions of people would starve. I just, uh, just a quip. An, an agronomist I was talking to said, Ron, there is one continent that is almost all entirely organic agriculture. That continent is Africa. It is also the hungriest continent on the planet. Well, I, I think that we should send all of those people over there then. <laughs> Let them put it into practice <laughs> yeah. and see how it works out for them. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that you point out in the book, the people who worry about GMO are often the same people who have for a long time been worried about pesticides. Uh, GMOs have reduced the use of pesticides by something around 9%. How do they rationalize these seemingly contradictory beliefs? Or are they just against everything? I don't think that they they think about it very much is the truth of it. Uh, again, <laughs> uh, the, the, the distinction, I, how do they rationalize it? That is a very good question. I, I, I The data are pretty clear. The data are right there. As, as you point out, the amount of pesticides that are being used in the United States have been dramatically reduced because farmers have switched to genetically modified crops. And it's, it, it's inarguable. It's there. And to the extent that you're worried about pesticides, you should be praising that as a wonderful benefit for human health and for the environment. Speaking of the pesticide issue, you say that DDT was unfairly maligned. And as a result, millions of people are dying of malaria because countries have either banned it or it still has this unfair stigma against it. Is the anti-DDT crowd and the anti-GMO crowd, are, are they just only concerned with first world problems? Uh, I think that that's probably true. They would argue that they weren't. With regard, with regard to DDT, um, one of the concerns, was, you know, this became a concern again in Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. Uh, she was afraid that the uh, use of DDT was decimating wildlife populations, particularly uh, raptor birds like hawks and eagles. And it turns out that DDT being used as an agricultural 
chemical probably was uh, affecting those bird populations. DDT probably needed not to be used ultimately as an agricultural uh, pesticide, but it could still be used as a pesticide to prevent malaria, that is, be deployed, for example, against mosquitoes. And you would use a lot less of that and would have a lot less impact on the environment. But the uh, environmental community wanted a complete ban of the chemical and have essentially achieved that. And as a result, there uh, a lot of people died of malaria who might otherwise have been spared because of uh, the use of DDT. And that, that is a tragedy. And I, and I think that the problem here is that people are not willing to go for nuanced uh, cost-benefit analyses. They'd rather have all-or-nothing moral claims. Well, yeah. If you if if you have a choice between saving millions of lives and saving a handful of species of birds, I mean, I think that's a pretty obvious choice for most people. I, I think so, but I don't even think you have to make that choice because if you, the amount you would have been using to uh, to control malaria would have been dramatically smaller than the amount that was being used to to dust crops, and so the birds would also have been spared. Well, we're kind of jumping around all over the place here because yeah, you right. cover an awful lot of territory in this book um, besides just uh, population and the environment. And one of the focuses is on the FDA's regulation of pharmaceuticals and various medical innovations. You say the FDA is killing more people than it saves. How so? Well, I'm using that as an example of what is called the precautionary principle, which is a demand by the environmental community and other uh, people who are concerned about risk that no new products should be allowed out unless they can be proven com completely safe or absolutely safe, which sounds like a pretty good policy, except, of course, you can never prove anything completely safe before you've tried it out. They want trials without errors, in other words. What has happened is the FDA uh, has killed more people because they're delaying what will turn out to be really good drugs because of their fears of, uh, of, of possible dangers. And so you end up, and there's a pretty good data on this, in many cases, killing more, 10 times more people by delaying drugs than by um, approving drugs that turn out to have bad side effects. So this is, again, cost-benefit analysis. The agency is being way too cautious. And as you point out, many times the alarmist data is proven wrong eventually down the road, but the damage is already done. And we have a tough time psychologically letting go of those biases once they're established. Just look at you know what we were just talking about with DDT or, or one example you use is the scare over saccharin a few years ago. Um, right. Are there good medications and good products right now that you see eventually being vindicated down the road, perhaps when it's too late? Um, actually, I don't feel like I want to comment on that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, you know, I'll go to something that I know you have a comment on then, um, which is vaccinations. Uh, yeah. we, you know, it, it drives me crazy too. this irrational and frankly dangerous anti-vax movement, um, for which there seems to be no real evidence. Let me ask you this after the outbreaks we had earlier this year in the U S and doctors and political leaders, including the president, came out and said, go take your kids to get their shots. Have we finally put this issue to rest? I hope we can get this issue behind us. As you point out, there was an outbreak of measles uh, earlier this year at Disneyland in, in California. Uh, more than 100 people came down with it. Uh, about a third of them actually had to go to the hospital to get treated. 
there's another case in Washington State where actually a woman who had a compromised immune system was exposed to unvac- children who were unvaccinated who got measles and she got measles and she died. The idea of vaccination is it not only protects you, but it also protects the 10 million Americans who uh, cannot benefit from vaccines because they have uh, compromised immune systems or they're elderly or they're too young to be vaccinated. You're harming your neighbors if you don't get vaccinated or you're, you're at risk of harming your neighbors if you don't get vaccinated. And of course, you should protect your children and yourself as well by being vaccinated. It's uh, it's a crazy over-cautious notion again. It's, 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 if you will, the precautionary principle run wild where people have taken you know, one or two really terrible studies and said, see, this person found that, um, that vaccination causes autism. That particular study has been retracted, and the guy who did the study, his license has been taken, and he's been accused of fraud. Yet we are stuck now for 15 years with this odd notion that vaccination causes autism. Yeah, and even if there was something to back it up, I mean, it seems like an obvious choice if I were a parent and someone says, well, do you want this small percentage of a chance that your kid could grow up with autism or do you want your kid to die? It seems like an obvious choice to me. We're going to take a quick break and then in the next half, we'll talk about the, well, I guess you could call it the elephant in the room, which is climate change and how Ron's thinking has evolved on the subject. Back in a moment. This portion of the podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible has over 180,000 audiobooks available to download for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And right now, Kick-Ass Politics listeners can get a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com and go get your free audiobook. And if you like Kick-Ass Politics and want to help keep us on the air, then please support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Your support will help keep us producing new and even more interesting programs in the future. That's gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with Ron Bailey, author of The End of Doom. Ron, you're a relatively recent convert to the global warming camp. You say around 2005, you began to change your thinking and, and accept that science does point to some degree of global warming. How did you come to that conclusion? Uh, the data. What happened is is that uh, in my first book, EcoScan, which appeared in the early 1990s, I, I had covered global warming, which was a fairly new topic at the time. And even the National Academy of Sciences agreed with me that there wasn't really good data to suggest it was a problem at that point. It needed to be studied, but it wasn't necessarily going to be, to be a problem. So I chalked it up to being yet another one of the many environmental scares that I had encountered in my reporting for that first book. Uh, I kept reporting on it. I've been to uh, 10 United Nations climate change meetings at this point. I've talked to literally scores and scores of scientists. I read fairly broadly in the scientific literature, and it's a huge amount of data and uh, analyses that are coming out. 
And around 2005, I concluded that, yeah, I was wrong. Uh, climate change, the preponderance of the scientific evidence indicates that climate change, man-made climate change, could become a significant problem for humanity by the end of the century. So I publicly changed my mind and said, this is the best I can do. This is my analysis. And I laid out my analysis and why I changed my mind. And it didn't please a lot of people. I can imagine. <laughs> well, let me ask you this then. I'm sure many of those same people have pointed this out to you. Um, the warming trend seems to have flattened over the past 15 or so years. Does that mean that we have won the battle? Is it possible that some of the measures that we have taken already are actually paying off? What explains that flattening of the climate temperatures? Well, that is the uh, trillion-dollar question. Uh, you are right. What has happened over the last 15 to 18 years, depending on where you start your your, your analysis, uh, the average temperature of the globe has been basically flat for that period of time. Bear in mind that uh, the last decade was the warmest decade in what they call the instrumental record. So it's been flat, but it's been hot. Uh, relative to earlier periods of time. But this flattening is a big problem. The uh, climate models uh, that the environmental community and, uh, and various regulators are relying on uh, suggest that the temperature should have been continuing to go up by, at a rate of 0.2 to 0.3 degrees uh, uh, centigrade per decade, which means that we should be considerably warmer than we are. And that didn't happen. So I, the models appear to be running way too hot. And if that is the case, that might suggest that the models are wrong and that uh, what we're doing to the climate by adding more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere is probably more benign than the model suggests, which would give us more time to adapt to or uh, mitigate the problem in the future. You ask if, if, anything, if we've done anything to, to perhaps cause this flattening. The truth is, no, we haven't. Uh, the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere continues to go up. There was uh, one dip in the amount of carbon dioxide last year. That is, it was basically flat, but the trend is still up. And the theory is, and uh, the models suggest, that the more carbon dioxide you add, you add, the warmer it's going to get. And in your book, you say the only way to really figure out what has been going on over the past 15 years is if we wait and see, which could take a couple of decades. And I'm guessing right. that a lot of your peers in the global warming crowd probably aren't crazy about that idea. No, they, 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 they on two sides of it is uh, there are certainly a lot of people who would be happy to wait and see because that means that we wouldn't have to spend a lot of money on trying to decarbonize the economy, which is basically switch from fossil fuels to uh, other types of fuels, nuclear, uh, renew, uh, renewable energy, that kind of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, if the alarm goes away, the pressure to do that would go away. And this would, uh, how shall we say, displease a lot of the environmental alarmists out there. Yeah. Well, you, you, on the other hand, you're not an alarmist. You say that we don't have to panic necessarily. There's a sensible approach to climate change that should be one of mitigation and adaptation. What exactly would that entail? Well, mitigation means uh, switching fuels essentially from fossil fuels like coal and oil and natural gas to um, non-fossil fuels. Uh, my, my preferred probably would be nuclear, but also a mix of nuclear uh, and various renewable fuels like uh, solar and wind would, would be helpful. Uh, 
Uh, and that was, that's called mitigation. And the good news is, is that in fact, uh, with regard to some of the renewable fuels, solar in particular, the prices are coming down quite steeply, which means adopting them in uh, the next 10, 20, 30 years will become ever cheaper. And that, that is definitely good news. And they probably will be cheaper than fossil fuels in the next generation or so. Uh, adaptation means the kind of stuff we do anyway. We we have to adapt to any changes that happen uh, to the weather. If things do get warmer, for example, we will use more more air conditioning. If sea level continues to rise, we will uh, build more dikes, if you will, and move further inland. There are human beings always adapt to weather. We if it also becomes uh, warmer, what will happen is that uh, farmers will switch crops. They will start growing different crops for different regions, for different rainfall amounts, that kind of thing. It's a fairly gradual process that, if you will, markets will essentially nudge people toward doing. Well, yeah. I mean, we're not cavemen just sitting around waiting for a comet to hit the earth. We can. This is something we have some control over and we have the technology to do something about it. You argue that the best defense we have against pollution and global warming is economic growth. Is it just that more prosperous people are kinder to the environment? Right. Well, this what happens is that economies and societies undergo, uh, if you will, something called the environmental transition, sometimes called the environmental Kuznets curve. What happens is, is that when uh, people are very, very poor in a very poor country, and they start to develop economically, they don't really care uh, so much about the cleanliness of the air or the cleanliness of the water around them, they're much more interested in making sure that they, they have good jobs, that their children get good education, they better housing, that kind of thing. But eventually what has ha- what happens, and we see this in countries all around the world, is, is that as people get richer, they start looking after their environment. They start going, I don't want to breathe dirty air, I don't want to drink dirty water, and they start making improvements to environmental quality over time. And, we, and the United States did that um, uh, as many people probably remember from the 1950s and 60s, the air and the water in the United States were a lot dirtier uh, than they are today. Basically, I sum it all up. Richer is cleaner. And anything that slows down the process of, of, uh, of economic growth will, eventually, will also slow down the process of eventual environmental cleanup. Well, also on the environmental front, um, you've said that we need to get over the idea of pristine nature and start to embrace innovative ecosystems. I think back to uh, Jurassic Park when he says nature will find a way. Is it a case where we're just not giving nature enough credit here? I believe that is absolutely the case. And I think that most ecologists would agree with me. Not environmental scientists, but ecologists. (laughs) Uh, The natural world is not fragile for the most part. It is incredibly robust. As you say, the Jurassic Park line is correct. Nature will find a way. And one of the things, for example, that I talk about are introduced species or people who are always very worried about that is that they're going to be terrible and they're going to cause a lot of problems. And some of them do, very few number of them do, and they're very high profile cases. But the fact of the matter is that the landscape that you see outside your window in the United States, let's say in the eastern part of the United States, and you're looking out your window, the most, uh, a good percentage, not most, but a good percentage of the plants in your backyard are from other continents. They've come here. They're good neighbors. They are not destroying the, the natural environment. In fact, what you find is, is that 
they're, they've increased the species richness, if you will, and that has a lot of benefits for the environment, including better uh, cycling of, of, uh, of nutrients and so forth, and perhaps water retention. You say that we'll reach peak farmland pretty soon uh, at the middle part of this century, and we're going to be able to turn over an area twice the size of France back to nature. What right. are the factors that are going to enable us to do something like that? Well, actually, uh, the data that I'm, I'm citing are from researchers at Rockefeller University. They say that peak farmland is almost here now. It's not going to be uh, toward the middle of the century. We're almost at the point of peak farmland now, which is why an area uh, two, and a half size, two and a half times the size of France will probably be reverting to nature by 2060. And they also point out, and this I love, is we could get rid of biofuels, uh, subsidies that is turning corn into alcohol to burn in our cars. Uh, they say that we could have as much as uh, as much land reverting to nature as double the size of the United States east of the Mississippi River by the by 2060. And the reason that's happening is that farmers are becoming vastly more productive over time, and we're growing more and more food on less and less land over time, and that trend is continuing. Uh, farmers are abandoning in the fields. Many of them are moving to the cities where there are far more opportunities for, for work, education, and opportunities for their children as well. About two years ago, for the first time, most people on planet Earth lived in cities. Uh, over 50% of people now live in cities, and that trend is going to continue. And I've done a calculation in the book that basically says that the 3.6 billion people who are essentially very poor farmers, many of them who live out on the landscape are going to be moving into cities, and that by the end of the century, uh, only 1.6 billion people will be living on the land, which means that a hell of a lot more land is going to be going back to nature over that period of time. That will also ease a lot of people's fears about uh, the trends for towards species extinction, etc., like that. Essentially, humanity is withdrawing from nature, and uh, it's going to be an arena, if you will, of uh, pleasure and enjoyment and less for resource exploitation in the future. Well, yeah, and the urbanization of the world leads to greater sharing of resources. Right. Uh, basically, people who live in cities use less energy, for example. Uh, they use less water. They use, I mean, essentially, cities are fairly resource-sparing uh, entities. And the other good news is, is that it turns out once people get there, most people actually prefer living in cities. Well, before we go, Ron, give us your vision of the future. In summation, what do we have to look forward to? The world in 2100 will be, have a population about what it is today, most likely. It'll be a hotter world, but it'll be a much richer world. Average per capita income on planet Earth right now is about $10,000 per person. It's going to be between sixty dollars and $100,000 per person by 2100, a much richer world. There'll be far fewer people living on the landscape, far more people living in, in cities. We will be using a lot fewer resources per capita. It's basically going to be a world of plenitude uh, for both humankind and uh, nature. Well, I certainly envy the next generation. As I, in my book, actually, I say, don't fear for future generations. I rejoice for future generations. Absolutely. Well, the book is The End of Doom, Environmental Renewal in the 21st Century by Ronald Bailey. Ron, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be with you. 
A great big thank you to Ronald Bailey for coming on the show and dispelling all that gloom and doom. Hey, I know that I'm going to sleep better tonight. Be sure to check out his book, The End of Doom, Environmental Renewal in the 21st Century. And I'll include a link to the book's Amazon page in the show notes at kickasspolitics.com. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you can automatically get new episodes as they become available. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps a lot with our rankings on iTunes. And if you like Kick-Ass Politics and want to help keep us on the air, then support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Your support will help keep the lights on over here and will be greatly appreciated. That's gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com or leave a voicemail on the toll-free listener hotline at 844-KA-POLITICS. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.